You're listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Now for political insight and strategy, let's get started with your hosts, Howard Schweitzer and Mark Alderman. Patrick and Caitlin, good morning. It is Saturday, January 30th. We have a markless edition of the Beltway Briefing, and it's a mostly millennial edition of the Beltway Briefing with Patrick and Caitlin, mostly because I certainly don't fit that category, but we've got the two hardest working millennials I know um, here with me to bring down the average age. And let's start by talking about what clients have been asking us. What, Caitlin, what are your clients asking you this week? Well, explaining the reconciliation process has kept, I think, all of us very, very busy over the past couple of weeks, given the 50-50 Senate split, um, explaining, you know, can this $1.9 trillion stimulus package pass um, on a very partisan 50-vote divide? Can things like a $15 minimum wage be included in that package um, and, and pass and become law of the land. And we're also getting a lot of questions about, you know, the vaccine rollout, the 50 state nature, when um, all types of different essential workers, whether they're uh, food and ag workers, grocery store workers, when they're going to see, you know, and have the ability to get to get their vaccines. Which we've seen, given the nature of the 50 state sort of patchwork, it's a different answer based on each individual state. But that's what, yeah. what, what I'm getting a lot of over these a very, very busy first uh, week and a half of the Biden administration. Yeah, Patrick. Yeah, uh, I'm getting a lot of of the same questions, Caitlin, is I would I would add on reconciliation. I think a, a lot of clients are starting to look ahead and and think, you know, if if a particular priority that that I have or, you know, their company has doesn't make it into this this first package out of the gate. What are the prospects going forward the rest of the year? Yeah. Um and that's an open question on on a lot of things because how this process goes and how political it gets uh, and partisan it gets can obviously determine the will of people on both sides to work together on issues, um, you know, going forward. So, you know, clearly there is a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of kind of hard feelings right now in Congress, period. I think a lot of that coming out of what happened on January 6th, a lot of it has just been happening over the course of a great, you know, a very long time. But I think clients are really wanting to know, you know, in this partisan environment, if I don't make it in on this first package, do do we have a chance of getting things done? And then on the vaccines, Caitlin's exactly right. Uh, the whole process is just uh, really, really challenging to figure out um, as folks are reading about every day. And so we're trying to work with individual states <clears throat> to make sure that our clients are well positioned to, to be ready to go when their time comes. Yeah. I would echo all that and add on, I think we're beginning to get questions from clients about what I'll just broadly call progressivism. Where in the administration, look, I think COVID is 90 5% of the conversation, but there's this growing question about where we're going to see the kind of regulatory progressive activity. And we've seen some in the early executive orders. Um, 
but as I always say, it's based on personnel and he's appointed some or named some very progressive regulatory folks to take um, key spots inside the agencies, SEC, CFPB, places like that. And um, so we're beginning to get some of the, okay, how's the Biden administration going to impact my, my business kind of, kind of stuff. But I certainly agree by and large it's stimulus and, and vaccines. So why don't we go a little bit deeper on each of those topics, Patrick kind of, you've both thrown out this reconciliation term, but for our listeners, step back and explain the dynamic of what's going on from a big picture perspective. Sure. So, you know, the Congress and the White House, you know, uh, the congressional leadership on the Democratic side and the, and the Biden administration are trying to decide by what means they are going to pass uh you know, in this case, COVID uh, stimulus. And in order to pass anything through what's called kind of regular order through the regular process, uh, in the United States Senate, it takes 60 votes to end debate and move to a final vote uh, to pass a bill. And so you need, in this case, given the the makeup in the Senate, you need 10 uh, Republicans to go along and say, you know, even if I'm not going to vote on final passage, I'm fine this going to to a vote on the floor. And that is really hard to do in this environment. And particularly when we're talking about one point nine trillion dollars or whatever it works out to be. Um, so the budget reconciliation process is really the only means by which Congress can pass any legislation with a simple majority in both the House and the Senate. But there are a lot of rules attached to that process on what ultimately can be in and what ultimately uh, doesn't pass muster. Uh, there's something in the Senate called the Bird Rule, which uh, you'll hear a lot about, which uh, requires what is included in reconciliation to be germane to the budget process. And so it's not just sort of a, a back end around legislating, um, but over the course of the last 10 to 15 years, reconciliation has increasingly been used as a means to legislate, not dissimilar to Howard, but we always talk about the increased uh, executive authority that's been taken by the agencies. We've seen an increase in, um, you know, rulemaking and that type of thing. People are trying to find ways around <laughs> around Congress doing what they're supposed to be doing, which is which is kind of legislating through regular order. So that's sort of the dynamic. Yeah. And that was great. And I think that, you know, the, the question folks are asking is, OK, so is it going to be a it's going to be a Democratic only bill? And and we've seen the plan from the Biden administration, Caitlin. We haven't seen we haven't seen a bill from from the House yet or from the Senate. Um, I think the assumption is that the House drops a bill sometime, you know, maybe this week. Um, and, but then the, you know, uh, then the Senate takes it up and it's really going to, the rubber's really going to meet the road in the Senate, Caitlin, is that, is that right? That is right. And there's a lot of frustration. I know last weekend, the White House was talking with a group of Republican senators trying to get buy-in on this next package. But yet at the same time, we're hearing that um, Democrats are planning to move forward on a vote on a shell budget next week, which would allow the jump starting of this reconciliation process. 
So 10 days ago, you know, we we saw Joe Biden, um, you know, and his swearing in speech speaking about unity. And it's really frustrating that it seems like Democrats want to do it alone on stimulus and are not really trying to get Republican buy-in at a time when there's still unspent funds. We just passed a huge package at the very end. It got signed into law, I think, on December 27th. Everyone agrees we need more money for vaccines. We need to maybe revisit some of these very targeted individual stimulus checks. But from the Republican perspective, a a $1.9 trillion bill, what is the hurry with this? And if Democrats really do go it alone, I think that's going to really blow up the opportunity to get some bipartisan things done in Congress. And it, in my view, goes against you know a lot of what President Biden was saying just 10 days ago on unity and working together and trying to get things done across the aisle. Yeah, we'll, we'll drill into that a little bit more um, later. But I, I think the, um, you know, there, we are we do expect the Democrats to use the reconciliation process. And by the way, the Republicans have used the reconciliation process. They used it to pass a tax reform bill in 2017. They tried to use it to throw out the ACA and it didn't work because they couldn't get enough Republican votes. So, but, but they will, they'll pass something through reconciliation. It will include things like state and local relief, which the, the Republicans wouldn't agree to, frankly, because it doesn't fit their politics from a, an electoral perspective. It's the blue states that, that need more of the help as far as state and local relief, principally because before, early on, they were the hardest hit states and the most populous states. And, and they, were, they were very hard hit. So, um, you know, it's issues like that. I think things like support for healthcare and for the vaccine and that kind of thing, they could generally more support for small business. They could, they could find common ground on, but it's some of the tougher issues like support for state and local where, where they really don't agree. Um, on the vaccines, let's shift there. I, I think I was on a call yesterday with um, Larry Hogan, my governor, governor of Maryland, and it was pretty interesting because what he said is that the they don't need the federal government government to help with distribution. Um, they need money, apropos of our discussion on stimulus, and and they need supply. And I think maybe a little bit. Contrary to what you guys were saying earlier, I think the questions we've been getting from clients for the last month are all about distribution and access for their employees and kind of timing. But now we're up against a problem where there isn't enough vaccine supply, no matter who you are. Um, And from all the information I've been gathering on that point, the Biden administration, they're kind of in a hurry up and wait. The, they don't have that many tools in the toolbox to speed production and and access. 
There's some things they can do at the margins, uh, Patrick, but it, it, it is, there's a, there's a production issue more than there's a distribution issue or we're on the edge. And this was very much Larry Hogan's point, governor Hogan's point yesterday, we're moving from a distribution problem to a, a supply problem. Yeah. And I think we're going to hear about that nonstop over the next couple of weeks. Yeah. I I couldn't agree more that every call we have with States, that's kind of the, (laughs) the bottom line, which is processes are being set up. You know, States are setting up portals for people to register. They're laying out, uh, and and you know the sta- it's not like the states are are doing a perfect job. You know, many of them are deferring no. to the counties. Um, many of them, uh, it, there is a the different states are prioritizing different groups. Some are you know focused in on everyone sort of agreed on frontline healthcare workers. You got some states that are zeroing in on sixty five and older. You've got other states that are zeroing in on uh, you know people who were considered essential workers during the crisis so that's causing a little confusion particularly employers that are in lots of different states and um, but you're right Howard at the, at the end of the day the biggest issue here is supply and I was on a bunch of calls uh, at the federal level with administration folks and congressional leadership this week and they kind of know that's the biggest issue too so everyone's it's you know kind of hurry up and wait you know uh, so that's that's the number one issue. I think our clients are really starting to realize the other thing, and this is just something I'm noticing is there is a, there are so many conversations. Everything is sort of around fairness uh, and equity as it relates to who gets the vaccine. And I think that is a really important conversation to have. However, the counterpoint to that is we just need people to get vaccinated, right? I mean, we just need, and and if, I was talking about this with my wife yesterday, if, if someone gets vaccinated somewhere, that's a good thing no matter what. No matter if you think that they shouldn't have gotten it, you know, uh, when they did. And so we need to kind of do, we need to kind of walk and chew gum at the same time. We need to prioritize uh, equitable access to this vaccine um, so it doesn't perpetuate all of these people constantly feeling like the rich and the well-connected are going to be the first ones to get it, while also recognizing that we just need as many people to get it as are willing to get it too. once we have the supply uh, there. And, and if we spend all of our time trying to micromanage who gets it when, I just think that's that's not helping us either because yeah. we just need everyone to get vaccinated. The states have certainly come to – they're moving – down the spectrum as far as that's concerned toward like let's just not open it up to everybody but let's open it up to everybody over 65 for example like not try to micromanage the the distribution and some places seem to be doing it better than others but but yeah but i i will say you you mentioned equity and to me that is one of the overarching themes with respect to COVID, with respect to, I mean, I think it is kind of the fundamental principle that will guide this administration and that is guiding this administration across the full spectrum of of policy issues. And to that end, you know, Caitlin, what, you know, we have clients you and I work on together that have interests in front of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and the Federal Trade Commission. 
How do you think the Biden administration as compared to the Trump administration will take a principle like equity and look at specific client actions through that lens? Well, we know that this is something that every agency is is taking a look at and, and weighing. You know, the Trump administration was very focused more so on cost benefit analysis. Under Biden administration, this is a top priority, this equity issue, as well as um, environmental and climate issues, looking at every single decision through both lenses and ensuring that um, they are taking that into account. We're going to see a lot more of kind of activist um, focus on ensuring that the little guy is protected and whether it's through the financial consumer financial protection bureau, the CFPB um, on issues of debt collection on issues of uh, access to credit, access to credit. That's going to be a key priority and we're probably going see some regulation in that space. And and you mentioned the environment, like there's a perfect example where equity is going to be the guiding principle, social justice, environmental justice. If you look at the president's um, appointments that are, he's slated to make to the EPA, they have an environmental social justice background. It's, it's equity, equitable treatment, racially, socioeconomically, geographically, across the full spectrum of issues um, as it relates to the impact of the environment on, on public health. It's, it is the guiding principle through which every action this administration is taking needs to be, needs to be looked at. And if you're a company or an organization, um, uh, well, really any company or organization, you need to be thinking about what the government could do vis-a-vis your business through that lens. And, and it, is, it is the way to think about how this administration is going to govern. So uh, my, my point oh two. Um, Caitlin, you talked earlier about bipartisanship versus unity. I, you know, it, Talk to us again about your perspective on that, because you had some strong feelings. I don't necessarily agree with them, um, uh, but but kind of set the table for us on that issue from from the right perspective. Well, it's been ten days, as I said, and we've seen forty two executive actions, some of which you know were expected, and it makes sense. Every new administration comes in and undoes some of what the former administration did, particularly when we have a you know shift in in political party. However, we're seeing, you know, with the Keystone XL decision, energy workers that are now out of jobs that are devastated in the middle of a global pandemic. We're seeing uh, climate czar John Kerry and his $5,000 suits out there saying, it's fine, you guys could go work on solar panels. I mean, this is, there's been a lot of unilateral action over these first 10 days. And I don't want to come across as naive, but I maybe, I, I had a little bit more hope that President Biden was going to try to reach across the aisle and slow roll some of these decisions, particularly given the economic downturn and the pandemic. You know, the conversation about the debates and whether or not he was going to ban fracking and then one of his first groups of EOs comes out and bans fracking on federal lands right out of the gate. 
These are all very, very partisan decisions. And again, I think the disappointment with the Democrats deciding that we're going to go it alone on the next stimulus package, while, you know, saying that they want to work with Republicans in the Senate and try to get buy-in, and then on the next hand saying, we need to get this done this week. We need to pass a shell budget so that we can move towards reconciliation. That's destroying a lot of the goodwill that I think existed 10 days ago and a lot of the hope that maybe, you know, with a 50-50 Senate, we could have some bipartisanship around some of these issues. Where was that where was that goodwill when two thirds of the Republican House members voted to not certify that he won the election? I mean, the, the, the reality is there's a difference between, to your question, Howard, bipartisanship and tone. Um, what Joe Biden is going to focus on is the tone. Uh, he he does not want another four years of screaming and yelling and trying to divide Americans into different groups of people. And he doesn't want any of that. And that's not who he is. And that's not his life experience from a legislative perspective. He has to balance, I think, wanting Congress to work a little more like how he remembers it working when he was a U.S. senator and the political realities of what Congress is like now. And he's got a lot of members uh, in the rank and file and in leadership who are saying, listen, the Republicans played by this set of rules when they were in charge, and we're not going to play by a different set of rules when we have the ability to legislate. So while I think Joe Biden, want, President Biden wants there to be opportunities to work across the aisle, he's also not going to waste the first year or two of his presidency waiting for bipartisan compromise that may never come. Uh, and, and I think him and his team are going to make that determination they, they, when they feel that there is a real opportunity uh, to find consensus and work on issues together with the Republicans. I think they will. And I think he'll go to the Hill and I think he'll sit down with Mitch McConnell and I think he'll try to work those things out. But he's not going to wait on all of that uh, and, and kind of these kumbaya moments to, to act. And I just think that's that's part of what comes with, you know, elections have consequences. Well, and I agree, Patrick, and to your point, you're absolutely right. Elections do have consequences, and that's where a lot of folks that voted for Joe Biden as a vote against Donald Trump, not as a vote in support of his policy and his agenda, his left-leaning agenda, that's where I think some of those folks are realizing elections have consequences. Yeah, and there was a lot of votes in 2016, people who said, I'm not voting for Donald Trump and voting against Hillary Clinton, while that resulted in Republicans having uh, total control of Washington and and going forward with an agenda that maybe people who made that vote, that wasn't necessarily what they were voting for, right? It's it's just kind of, they're going to exercise the power that's available to them when they can. And that doesn't mean it's going to be easy, by the way. Getting 50 uh, Democratic senators uh, from Joe Manchin to Jeff Merkley to all vote the same way right. isn't going to be a cakewalk. But if they can do it, they're going to do it. Well, think about it this way. You effectively, given the very slim majority in the House and the razor thin majority in the Senate, you effectively have to have Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez agree with Joe Manchin on a bill. That's not that easy. No, I mean, they're they're in the same party in name only. Um, they come at this from completely different perspectives. And um, I, I just don't think, I just don't, I, I think there's plenty of disagreement. And, and in fact, you know, in my experience in government, this is more on the executive branch side, but 
there was often more disagreement between people in the same party than, and, and as you know, I was general counsel in an agency with a multi-member bipartisan board where the president's party had the majority of the board seats. There was often, almost always, more disagreement between the members on the president's side of the aisle than there was between the Democrats and the Republicans. And it's competition for power. It's everybody feeling like they should be in charge and, and they want to have the power. I, I, and, and I also think there's some stuff to celebrate in kind of where we find ourselves. Look, I think I've said it a thousand times, what happened January 6th and the, the Trumpian politics in the House are, are disgusting, immoral and um, uh, bad for the country. Putting that aside, um, it, disagreement is is good. Disagreement is democracy. Disagreement is democracy in a corporate boardroom. You don't want everybody to agree. Yeah. You want disagreement leads to the best decisions. Different perspectives, different pressures, different diversity, diversity, diversity of opinion. That's what leads to the best decisions. Any CEO will tell you that they don't want a group of yes people, a good CEO. They want they want diverse views. It's the team of rivals thing like that actually. And, and we have that. We have a 50 50 Senate. And look, there are some wackos on both sides of the aisle. I mean, this congresswoman from Georgia, the QAnon congresswoman, Marjorie Taylor Greene. I mean, that's just wacko nonsense. AOC is far out on the, on the spectrum. But and, and look, there's a lot of division and we have a lot of problems. <laughs> I don't want to sugarcoat it. But 50-50 in the Senate, a thin majority in the House, a president who is not a zealot for one side or the other, who's pledged to kind of govern with that tone <clears throat> of moderation and unity. Like, I think you, I think, Patrick, to your point, there's a difference, Caitlin, between bipartisanship and unity. We can be one country without all thinking the same thing. And I just think our mindset has to shift because to me, there's, there's actually some good stuff going on from a from the perspective of of making the right decisions. I, t I totally agree. And, and listen, you know, to, to your point, Caitlin, on bipartisanship, I mean, legislating is just different now, uh, given the polarization that we've seen. And we talked about this a little last week with kind of red states to blue states to, to get 10 Republican senators to cross the aisle is so much harder now than it was, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, because almost all of them are from states that Donald Trump won. That wasn't the case the last time we had a 50-50 Senate. And so, you know, that is, so if he waits, if he says, I'm gonna govern in a bipartisan way, I'm only gonna pass things that have bipartisan support. He's gonna be waiting for two years while the Republicans are gonna try to use that uh, as an opportunity to take back the majority. Like. He just has to, he's going to have to make a decision. I'm sure his folks are telling him we are going to work with the Hill when we can. And if the choice is, you know, can we get a bipartisan vote or not? We'd rather it be bipartisan, but that can't be 
ultimately the only thing they they try to achieve or they just won't get anything done. They just won't. And, well, and on a stimulus package, though, I mean, there was talk a week and a half ago about them breaking it into two pieces and having a bipartisan support on more money for vaccines, additional support for small businesses, some additional targeted relief for individuals. Why do we need to do everything? And, and that's and that's just the way Washington has come. We're in the middle of a global pandemic. We've got incredibly high unemployment numbers, and this administration is putting more workers out of business this week. But why not? do this in multi-steps. Fine. If you want to have bailouts for blue states and all of these liberal priorities and a $15 minimum wage, put it in a separate package. But in my view, when it comes to stimulus funding and support for America right now in the middle of a global pandemic, we should be doing it in a bipartisan way, just like we did the last two bills. Howard can walk us, give us a little history lesson. 2008, financial crisis, worst crisis of our lifetime. Democrats have 59 U.S. Senate seats. They pass a bill that was less than half the size of this. They got three Republican votes. Three. Well, we were, that was at a time when government was closing down our country and our businesses and shutting folks down and forcing people not to work. The reason I bring that example up is that that is exactly what I'm sure Biden's advisors are telling him is we can wait as long as possible. That was the best we could do 12 years ago in a crisis that was, you know, as big, if not much bigger than this, it was obviously a lot different. I mean, Howard, you, you were there. What's your perspective? I mean, from the legislative math, there's, they're not going to get 60 votes on a package. So he just has to decide, do you want to do a stimulus bill or not? Yeah. And at the end of the day, if the Democrats do a bill that the Republicans don't like, they'll go out and campaign on, on that basis. They, they don't, you know, it's all, it's, it's posturing. And I don't think that this is really a matter of principle. I think it's really a matter of politics and the need to get something done. And, you know, Obamacare, look at Obamacare. Yeah. Um, I mean, it maybe got Donald Trump elected. It got certainly got the Republicans back in control in Congress. Like, Actions have consequences. And just because you're going to do something on a single party basis doesn't mean the floodgates are open and crazy stuff is going to happen. There are still guardrails on the process. And and I think they're you know, they're thinking about that. And Joe Biden is very aware of that because he doesn't want to lose his majority in the House and his majority in the Senate in two years. I think it's I think it's a smart calculation, too, on his part, which is and Obamacare is a great example. And now looking at how the politics on health care reform has changed, it's kind of amazing. It was a boondoggle to Republicans in a few subsequent elections. Then when they finally had a chance to overturn it, they couldn't do it. And frankly, it ended up hurting them in the 28 midterm election. So it's just it's in, as it's amazing watching the evolution of that issue. Uh, and how it's kind of happened politically. But I think the Biden administration is making a smart bet, which is not all big legislation uh, is equal. And Obama didn't lose in the midterms in 2010 because of the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. He lost because of, of health care reform. That was in, and cap and trade and a bunch of other stuff. But if you're going to bet on a partisan track on something big, a stimulus bill where you're giving people a lot of stuff is a pretty good one to bet on, right? I mean, we saw direct payments, people like it. 
if we're pumping money into the economy, as long as people feel like at some level they understand where it's going and what it's doing, it is not the same as trying to pass a bill on a partisan way that transforms the economy in a way that people don't understand. And that that I would just point out that I think that's as we're talking about legislating, if he were to try and pass a climate bill on a partisan basis, which I don't think he could do anyway, that would politically be very perilous. It would confuse people. They wouldn't understand it. Um, th- so that's different than I think like a, a stimulus bill to address a crisis. But Howard, what do you think? I mean, I, I also think that some of the stuff that he has proposed in his package, like the federal minimum wage is a, is a nod to progressives. It's tossing the progressives <clears throat> a bone and making them feel like he did something that they wanted. And at the end of the day, I, I don't know, it's, it's 50, 50, maybe less than 50, 50. I think it's less than 50, 50 that it actually makes it into the final bill, but there's, there's a lot of intra-party politics here as much as there are inter-party politics. And I think, you know, we have to, we have to look at what the final product looks like and judge it by that, as opposed to what the announcements are, because it's, it's as much an intra-party negotiation as anything. So my view. All right. So let's end with this. Let's grade the Biden administration Caitlin, 10 days in, it feels like it's been six months to me, not in a bad way, by the way. Um, But uh, 10 days in, we did this uh, in the transition. Caitlin, grade, grade the Biden administration. I'm giving him a D this week. I think putting tens of thousands of energy workers out of business in the middle of a global pandemic in 10 days in your first day in office is a bad, bad idea. Terrible for this country. Patrick, a D. A D, wow. I don't wanna to go to Caitlin University. I don't think I would pass. Um, I'd give him an A and, and here's why. I, I am always taken in the first week of a presidency with seeing um, just how things kind of feel. And in the midst of all these challenges, things feel very uncertain, but I think as a part of uh, because of his age, how he's, uh, you know, been in politics for so long, he was vice president for eight years and and he's been on the scene for a long time. I don't think I've ever seen someone who looked more like like a president right away than Joe Biden did. And I just I found in seeing the press conferences and the television coverage, it felt so normal. And usually that first couple of weeks, Trump, Obama, seeing someone new in the office, you're kind of like, wow, this is kind of weird. I've gotten used to seeing you know, this other guy for the last four or eight years. I didn't feel any of that. And I think the the just total kind of normalcy that I saw this week, there weren't any huge scandalous blow ups. You know, there isn't some cabinet appointee that's like a disaster yet. They haven't completely lost control of the message in the midst of all they're dealing with. I think it was a perfectly good first week on the job. And, and so I give him an A. Caitlin, I'm going to let you respond to that before I go. Oh, was was it the eye roll that you were looking at? Patrick, you're, you're you know, you're really channeling the New York Times and all of the really glowing media coverage that we've seen about the bagels in Georgetown and the dogs on the White House lawn. I we didn't bring any of that up. Joe Biden can do no wrong. 
normalcy in the White House. Let's ignore what's actually happening from a policy perspective. But we have an adult in the White House. Hang on, you weren't you weren't here last week, though. To be fair, I was the one last week who brought up the media coverage of the inauguration, how it looked like state TV, because I actually agreed with that criticism a little bit. But it's not the bagels in Georgetown. It's it is it is just a sense of and listen, part of that is I think that we're not hearing tweets from the last guy every single day. It's amazing how turning the volume down on that has, uh, at least from a media coverage standpoint, made things feel more normal. But I just felt a sense of just kind of like, this is nice. You know, this is, this is at least like not crazy every single day. And I, I I don't think I'm alone in that. And I don't think that's an ivory tower thing. I think that's a, I'm I'm not saying it's everyone because you know, 70, however many million people voted for, for president Trump. But I think a lot of people felt this feels full and that's, that's nice. I'm going to give him a, a B plus. Um, I was debating between an A minus and a B plus, but I'll, I'll go B plus because because it's early. You know, I've I've been through several presidential transitions on the inside. And what I would say is that it normally takes months to switch from campaign mode to governing. And this is probably still the case inside some of the smaller agencies, but it. And even in the financial crisis, when we went from Bush to Obama, I'll tell you, the Obama folks came into Treasury and except for the secretary, thank God, Geithner came in a couple of weeks late, but came in and he had been part of the crisis response all along. So he was plug and play. Um, but, But some of the other appointees, no, they really weren't. It, it, and um, they asked a few of us to stay for that very reason. And, and I was proud to have I'm proud to have worked for the Obama administration in that role longer than I worked for the Bush administration. They got where they needed to be. But the point is campaign mode to governing. It, it's normally months and there's all sorts of goofy stuff going on inside the agencies that's more reflective of a presidential campaign than it is of actually taking the reins of government and governing. And I think these guys, I think Biden and Biden's team knows, I think they've gone pretty much right into governing mode. And I think they have gone there because they know what the country faces and it's COVID from a public health and an an economic perspective. And there's all sorts of progressivism, Caitlin, there, there is, and, and um, there's all sorts of bigger issues, climate, and there are certainly foreign policy issues. That's been very quiet. Um, But I think, The Biden team knows that until they get COVID under control, until we right our ship, like what's the point of flying around the world and talking to the rest of the world about what we think they should do when we're such a an obvious mess to the rest of the world? I think they know that everything else stems from getting this crisis under control and whether it's mandating masks and public transit and interstate commerce or whatever it is, um, you know, they're going to, 
they're going to put that stuff to the top. I think they've done a fine job. It's early, so I'll I'll reserve some judgment and and give them a B plus. It's it's really hard. Um, I think they I think they do have to communicate a little more. They're very quiet, and I think I'm personally enjoying the kind of not thinking about Joe Biden every 17 seconds like we had to think about Trump and the right turn he'd take us the world on with a tweet. That's great. I think they do have to kind of be sure to level with the American people about where we are on COVID and and what we're up against and particularly access to the vaccine. People just have to know where we are. And I don't I think they could do a little bit better job in that regard. So I'll give them a B plus. And uh, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. Well, Caitlin, Patrick, a spirited debate as always. This is going to be a fun uh, four years and we will be back next week on a uh, on Saturday and hopefully Mark will be back with us. But it's great talking to you guys this morning and we will be back soon. Thanks, everybody. You've been listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Please subscribe to our podcast so our episodes are automatically sent to you when they are released. The Beltway Briefing Podcast has been produced by Hometown Podcasts and Audio, Washington, D.C.